You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful, dear listeners, welcome back, welcome to the breakfast show. You are listening to the Voice of Islam radio. The Voice of Islam radio is presenting the true teachings of Islam, broadcasting from the biggest mosque of Britain. My name is Shahid Muni Ahmed, and I'm joined here with my two brothers, Asim Hashmi and Sharif Bono. Brothers, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Peace be and blessing of Allah be upon you guys. How are you doing? Assalamu alaikum, Sahil. Wa alaikum salam, Sahir. Alhamdulillah, by the grace of God, all good. Thank you. And you? Yeah, I'm doing well. Thank you. Uh, can't complain. Um, the weather is fine. Um, the sun is shining. And uh, that's the most important thing, I believe. What else do we need, right? Yeah, what else do we need? I mean, this, um, that's it. I mean, it's Britain in the end, and uh, the sun is not always here in the Britain, so we should take benefit from it. Well, I'm hoping your sun comes my way, because I'm <laughs> sat here with a jumper on. Oh, really? <laughs> really? Yes, it's, it's, it's really dry. It's really grey and cold uh, here. Well, I can't say if it's coming to you, but I think it's going the other <laughs> way, so I'm sorry for that. <laughs> I guess I'll be sat here all day with my jumper on. Oh, uh, I think so. Uh, how was the heat wave, anyways? Uh, this uh, weekend, last weekend. Was last weekend we had that heat wave? It was, yeah. Yeah. How was it for you? Did you survive somehow? I I survived, but I didn't like it one bit. Mm. I must say, yeah, it was it was horrible. Oh yeah, I mean. Uh, it was difficult. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, the heat. Um, obviously, the vans they they were running all the time, and uh, you were looking for a cold spot in your house as well. Yeah, th- that weekend uh, was something like uh, you won't forget so easily. What about you? Uh, uh, so yeah, yeah, it was it was quite difficult. I mean, we we break the record. We should be happy with that. Yeah, yeah. Forty degrees. But anyhow, um, this is something. Um, if you discuss this with you, uh, relative from Pakistan, they will say, oh, there's nothing for us. This is very normal to us. So, uh, what do we have today? What's the uh, segment we will discuss today, Asim? So, we have two segments uh, that we're going to discuss today. We're, first is young black people changing their names and hair at work to fit in with colleagues. Okay. That's an interesting one. And then the second topic is cemeteries. More than what meets the eye. It's very interesting, and for that we have also interesting guests. So, dear listeners, gonna be very, very much as I said, informatic and interesting. So, do us a favor, stay tuned with the voice of some ready. But before we go to our first segment, Asim, what is so currently on the news? Yeah, we have uh, quite a few news stories. Uh, first, a uh, really important and breaking news is that gas, gas prices jump as Russia cuts German mm. supply. Um, gas prices jumped after Russia further cuts uh, gas supplies to Germany and other Central European countries after threatening to earlier this week. European gas prices rose almost 2%, trading close to the record high set after Russia invaded Ukraine. Uh, critics accused the Russian government of using gas as a political weapon. Russia has been cutting flows through the Nord Stream 1 pipeline to Germany, with the 
with it now operating at less than a fifth of its normal capacity. So it is that we are that the gas price are now forty five percent forty five percent higher than they were this mm. time last year. So this is it's a huge number. Forty five is not easy. Um, I don't know. It's very, very difficult for especially for those uh, who can't afford even the normal gas prices. Sharif. Yeah, it is, and um, and the prediction that it will go up even further to a staggering three thousand eight hundred and fifty um, thousand a year. So that's going to be. Um, I don't know how people are going to do to meet that because that's that. Some people that's their you know, yearly savings or more than that. So it's it's interesting um, to watch how, what the government does, especially now with the race for a new leader for the Conservative mm. Party, who will take over between Rishi Sunak and, uh, and um, Liz Truss. So what they will do in terms of cutting down the prices, but as Arsene mentioned, with Putin and the Russians kind of cutting down um the supply of gas this will only increase and we are looking at a very difficult winter ahead for us where bills could reach up to 500 pounds per month that is a crazy amount that is a crazy amount especially for those who can't afford that it's going to be very difficult for them i mean we know that um people they have done this before they instead of having one meal two meals they would have one meal only to have the heat on it's going to be very, very difficult, especially because, you know, since, I mean, the, uh, Russia has um, stopped Nord Stream 1, that's the main, main stream or the yeah. main gas pipeline was uh, supporting mm-hmm. us or providing us gas. Um, I really, this is a bad thing. I don't, I don't want to talk about war, etc. But what we can see is that war, is when war is happening, not even people within the uh, the uh, area where that war is happening are suffering even people from the outside and we all we can say that we are innocent we have nothing to do with these things but somehow we are also suffering it's a very sad thing but just rem- uh, it's also very good to remind people that our current head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community has reminded people to maintain peace to go the way of peace as well to go the way of Islam mm. um, but as I said we, we are here to talk about war and um, so this is gas line. This is sorry, this is not seen one. What else do we have? Some any good news? Um, yes. no, I'm not sure about good news, yeah. but there's an interesting article, um, kind of keeping to the topic of war, on the BBC this morning, where the um, the security advisor, the UK security advisor, Sir Stephen Lovegrove, said that the world was safer during the Cold War. And this is an interesting article okay. because he talks about how um, um, Sir Stephen Lovegrove said that rival powers understood each other better during the Cold War and that a lack of dialogue today made miscalculation more likely. And and this is interesting because we're seeing that there is, um, there, even now, we're seeing a lack of communication between the, the West and what we're calling the East, so China and Russia, and the likelihood of a nuclear um, attack or an accidental, what they're calling an accidental nuclear war, is increasing because we're not discussing ongoing tension over Taiwan, Trump era, tariffs on China imports. All of these things are not being discussed and it's being left 
with an uncertainty and nobody knows what the other side is thinking. And we don't have, and he goes further to say that today we don't have the same foundations with others who may threaten us in the future, in particular China. So the trust and transparency built through dialogue should also mean that we can be more active in calling out non-compliance and misbehaviors where we see them. So this is quite an interesting article, and um, that, and he goes on into uncontrolled conflicts and, and whatnot, but it's a dire time to be living and to be seeing these kind of threats that the world is going through, especially with the threat of a looming nuclear war between Russia, China, and, and the West. No, it's, uh, indeed it's very interesting. Uh, where was this uh, article published? Oh, it's on the BBC. It's on the front page of the BBC. I see. All right. Okay. This is very interesting, indeed. Um, yes, awesome. You, you're looking at... Yeah, we have some interesting and maybe some sad news for a, a lot of people. Um, are you ready, Sile? Yeah, of course. Okay. So McDonald's put up <laughs> price of cheeseburger uh -huh. for the first time in 14 years. Th this is going to be sad for some people. I'm, I'm serious. So the fast food chain said its, it's cost UK restaurant would be adding between 10 to 20p to a number of items. The price of a cheeseburger has increased from 99p to £1.19. To be honest, I can't remember when I had a cheeseburger from McDonald's. Seriously, I can't even remember having a burger from McDonald's for, I don't know, for a decade maybe. It's been a time when I used to be a child, would go there, but no, if you're growing up, you see that. No, no, I always go. Really? For burger or for ice cream? Anything. For anything? No, They said if the price of the McDonald's cheeseburger had increased in line with inflation, it would now cost one point forty two. Oh, so sad for you guys. Yeah. I'm, so, I'm, I'm but uh, we are happy that uh, they haven't increased it too much. All right. Okay. You can afford it. <laughs> <laughs> it depends if you go for a menu. Maybe then it's going to be difficult. But yeah. No. Uh, of course. Uh, um, the th funny thing is that um, uh, I j this story just reminded me of my nephew because he's a big fan of McDonald's as well, mm -hmm. and uh, we had like a family gathering, and uh, because of him finishing the Quran. Oh, and nice. uh, he was asked where he wanted to go for uh, out for food with mm. the whole family. Yeah. yeah, and I was thinking like he would get say like for a restaurant like that, and Pandy said I want to go to McDonald's <laughs> to, fight, uh, to celebrate my army over there. Yeah, mm. so uh, children are a big fan of it. Of course, of course, yeah. But nowadays, yeah. Yeah, yes, please. No, no, I was going to say even parents are a big fan of it because it's quick and easy. Mm. And uh, and it used to be affordable. Used so, to be. Yeah, well, the thing is, if you look at the the prices and everything, that uh, everything's going up, and this is was to be expected, but it always kind of kept, was kept under the pound for a cheeseburger, even though, in my personal opinion, is the burgers were getting smaller and smaller, yeah. but it was always, it was always kept under the pound, but... Now it's it's increasing, and unfortunately, this is the price that the world is seeing. And um, it, overall, even the commodities that we used to kind of be, um, we buy on a daily basis have gone up. Bread, milk, egg, tea, all of those have gone up quite significantly in the last six months. And, and McDonald's increasing its price is just under the sign of the time that we're living in where 
we are, we are going to be spending a lot more on our food, a lot more on our utilities, and there'll be less and less left for yeah. we we used to have. It's, hmm. it's it's a I mean as you said before, difficult times are coming. But side, I think if you see some companies are really smart. I if, mean, if McDonald's we, is smart as well. Yeah, McDonald's is smart. And if you see other companies, they've kept the same prices, but mm. they actually have reduced the size of the box. So, so if yeah. you see uh, celebrations and these uh, yeah, chocolate boxes, like a few years back, they, they would be massive. massive. No, and now probably they're like half I the mean, size. I remember yeah. a Big Mac yeah. used to be massive as well. And you'd be mm. very happy to see the Big Mac. But that's <laughs> when they have reduced the size, you were like surprised. Yeah. For the same amount of so, money, I'm getting like a normal burger. Yeah, and and in America they've actually got a name for it. Do you know what they're calling it? No, they're calling it shrinkflation. Oh yeah. So <laughs> this is basically where even you know packs of tissues, um, cheese. All I've noticed it in my own um, in in um, in our local supermarket here, where I used to go and buy when we have a barbecue or have a get, get gathering. You'll go and buy a pack of sliced cheese. You normally used to get 10 in them. Now you only get six. Mm-hmm. And it's the same price. So those kind of things, they're reducing the prices. They've changed the size. They've made the bottle look the same size, but actually the content is smaller. So there's a whole raft of articles online um, from Bloomberg and others that talks about how companies like Asim said are becoming a lot smarter in the way they, um, they, they're selling their, their products. They're making like even sneakers, sneaker bars or Mars bars, all those chocolates have actually gone smaller in size over time. No, you, you also just mentioned America um, yesterday. A uh, wonderful colleague, he came from America. Uh, he went there for holidays and he told me that over there in America, you have, uh, that life is different. You have 20 different kinds of fast food uh, companies. Mm. And Mc, no one thinks about McDonald's or Burger King over there. They go mm. on a different, like yeah, yeah. all these yeah, other yeah. F- famous um, fast food comp- uh, places. And they, and that's the thing. He said these people are only like they will only go for fast food or they will eat everyday mm. fast food. And um, even that, I mean, as he saying said before, they have this word where it comes close. Uh, you see that the burgers are getting smaller and yeah. smaller. But you know, few people are still like dependent on it, dependent, but. They're addicted to go and have that burger, even though it's smaller, even though uh, they pay, sometimes they pay even more, and uh, the burger is getting mm. still smaller. But mm. as I said, in America especially, uh, they love fast food. They are. That's why you can see that the obesity rate is much more higher mm. than anywhere else. Mm. And true, it is. It is. It's very interesting uh, how people are trying to make us pay more for same thing, but... Like getting smaller, it's a, it's a biz- big business. It's let's more, let's more hope more they don't get too smart. Uh, let's hope that we are getting more smart. Now. Yeah, yeah. We do something. We do. We should boycott these things. Right? <laughs> go, go. The, the thing is, we've become dependent on them. Yep, absolutely. So, especially, um, we're going to be talking about Generation Z. Um, Z. So Gen Z, they've we've become that generation where we rely on takeaway, we rely on fast food, we rely on on deliveries so we don't go shopping we don't go out we don't um, tend to go and browse and we just order online and whatever we get we get and and that's the that's one of the symptoms of america at the moment where 
people and when I was there, you would see that everywhere, every day, all the restaurants will be packed. You know, and they'll be, they're so um, used to the idea that we'll go out for a meal. But you know, and it used to be cheap. That's very funny that, I mean, you know, especially about America, they they love food, they go for food, and uh, they go like, especially for this fast food or for the restaurant. But America is also known as a country for their athletes. They have produced many, many athletes. And even though, you know, um, uh, they they got like these leagues like NBA, NFL. Yeah. yeah. One of those who are the most famous leagues. I mean, NBA is the most famous league I know. And uh, people are dying, you know, trying to do everything to play in these leagues. And this is also, this is very funny uh, and very strange how these people, especially those athletes, how they have, maintain you know this discipline not to go and to eat outside not to go for this burger obviously they had one but they're still it's, it's very difficult yeah it's very difficult oh, I, mean, I can't do that <laughs> I, I mean recently uh, uh, Wesley Snyder he's retired three years ago he used to be very thin and very uh, I mean you could see that he, he was an athlete yeah but if you look at him now I mean he get massive uh, and sometimes if you see them I think okay well, no, he deserves because he had his life before where he maintained discipline where he would keep himself away from food and now he's getting massive maybe because he just wants to enjoy his life. So it is, I mean, um, some people who are very dedicated to something, but if they, as soon as they stop doing this, they just want to go and enjoy the life. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyhow, uh, coming to sport, um, we had yesterday a very interesting match. Yes, so... The Euros uh, 2022 women's final between England and Germany yeah, it's fixed now. <coughs> at, at Wembley will be a great football feast, according to Germany boss Martina Voss Tecklenburg. Okay. Yeah. Oh, it's, uh, yes, you know, Germany and England, when they face each other, it's not it's like, you know, all these feelings <laughs> come up and then all this history, <laughs> history past, history, this past, you know, war, whatever it is. And you see that it is more than a game then. It's more than... It's like a, a classical, right? It's more than a classical. Yeah, yeah. Especially if women are playing, it's more than a classical. Mm -hmm. And especially in the final then. So that's very interesting. Uh, yeah, they said they will now play England on Sunday in front of a crowd of up to 87,200 people. 87,000 in Wembley. Yeah. And before that, we will have also the community shield against Liverpool and Manchester City the day before. Mm-hmm. Uh, then that's this, uh, this is very interesting as well. This is gonna be a very tough match as well for let's see who's gonna win because Liverpool, Manchester City are are one of those teams where you think where you believe okay they're gonna definitely win the league. But this time, Tottenham has played bought very good players as well. They have bought very good players. Arsenal yes. has played bought very good players yeah. as well. And yeah. uh, I can't say anything, but you know if it comes to Tottenham, I would say okay they never won anything, but. Leave it like this. But Arsenal could do something. I mean, FA Cup is one of their most favorite trophies. They have won it quite often. And let's see. It's going to be very interesting. I mean, Premier League is one league. is always be very interesting. You can't say anything. It's going to win. Um, do you think Haaland will succeed and City? You know, to be honest, he's, uh, he's, uh, he's hardworking. He is. Hard he's trying to improve every year. But... Right now, we only have seen him playing in the Norwegian League, in the Austrian League, and in the German League, mm -hmm. which those leagues are considered as low-rated leagues. 
for everyone can play. And even in the Bundesliga, he wasn't able to win any title with Dortmund. And so, as I said, it's gonna in, in the Premier League. It's gonna it's very dif- difficult. It's very it's different. It's difficult to play. The defenders are big, stronger as well. The match is, I mean, tight as well. Uh, and you have to play more games as well. Mm-hmm. So it's a new land for him. And um, I can't say anything to be honest. I wouldn't be surprised if he, let's say, wouldn't succeed. I actually like him as a player, and I would love to him to be the next Aguero. Yeah, as I said, he's. I like I like people who are working very hard. Yeah, yeah Like absolutely. Cristiano Ronaldo, mm-hmm. him. Even if you look into other sports, like Lewis Hamilton, is also very hard working mm-hmm. and. When they win, then I think they deserve it because they have to work for it. Um, it's, um, I, I was, well, as I said, I can't say anything. Um, we have to see. It's what's too early to say. Too early to say. Uh, Lewandowski has left Bayern after a long, long um, battle. Battle. He's free now. He's happy. He's happy. Yeah. Um, he's going. Let's see what's happening to Barcelona now. I mean, they're back in the Champions League. And they have brought some decent players. They have they've literally tried to buy Chelsea's whole defense. Yes, um, Rodriguez is gone. Uh, we wanted. Uh, well, Rodriguez is going to Madrid. Oh, sorry, Madrid. Sorry, sorry. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, and then Christensen is gone. They want Aspilicueta from us as well, and we wanted um, the defender which they just signed as well. I think play in Champions he, League. That's he, his that's wish. His, that's his wish because he's Cristiano Ronaldo and Champions League. Is I mean, it's strange to see him playing in the Europe Europe League. Mm. He is a Champions League man. He has won the, um, five titles. In the Champions I don't. League. I don't think he has ever played. Has ever not played Champions League. Yeah, I don't think so either. But then, but he has asked Bas- uh, Bayern Munich. He has asked PSG. And even Chelsea. Wants, yeah, nobody wants no him. One, why is this so? I don't know. He is. I mean, he's still good, but I think he's still good. But the, his age is a factor. His salary could be a factor. Also. I think the salary is more the factor, not mm-hmm. the age, because for his age, he's still very good. Salary is one of the biggest factor. And the other thing is that, you, as we have seen in Manchester United, people are too much reliable on him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, as you went to said, you know, we we were gone kind of bad cause of him because we everyone just wanted him to score you know hmm. and now they can you can see that they want to play a full team he's he's a victim of his own success isn't he yeah it is yeah, it, yeah. It is or let's say as as you know he's um someone he came from nowhere and he had to work hmm. for that he left his parents in a very young age and uh he is, you know, he even if you look in childhood, he was someone who just wanted to win, and for that he mm. would do everything, like in the fair play, yeah. fair way. And now he has gone so f- up that, as you said, he's a victim of his own success now. Yeah. But but let's see. I mean, uh, hopefully, I uh, uh, I don't want him to retire anyways. Uh, and mm. he especially, you know, he wants to win not only uh, more titles, he also wants to win the World Cup this year. Hmm. Maybe it's gonna be his last World Cup for him and Messi. Uh, but I think, I think what do you, what do you think? Let's see. Let's. See. I mean, he he's still so fit, you know, yeah. and he's still a good player. So I think I would like him to be somewhere. For he, I don't even mind him being in Man Manu, you know, it's it's fine. Hmm. Yeah, let's see. It's good to play once in a lifetime in Europa League. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
especially I mean he has scored so many goals in every league especially oh, expect, uh, except in the Europe League maybe he wants to break mm. records over there as well mm. dear listeners uh, this is about Cristiano Ronaldo and you know how fit he is he is still a kind of role model to, 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 a reminder to us that we should also keep ourselves fit even in the age of 37 or close to 40 the listeners um, we're going now for a short break and after that we'll be back with the first segment so do us a favor and stay tuned with the Voice of Islam radio he claimed to be that lost one awaited by all major faiths of the world he claimed to be that Krishna that Hindus were waiting so long for he claimed to be that Buddha about whose coming the previous Buddha had prophesied he was that Jesus son of Mary awaited by both Christians and Muslims alike. He said he was the great reformer predicted by Guru Baba Nanak as well as the second coming of Zoroaster. He said that his mission was to bring all mankind to the realization that there is a God. He sought to bring about revolutions inside people so that they would fulfill the rights of each other as well as fulfill the rights of God. Now, just who was he? He was the Messiah of mankind, Mirza Ghulam Ahmed of Ghadian, and he was not a liar. 1400 years ago, the Holy Prophet of Islam, peace and blessings of God be upon him, claimed that the promised Messiah of all faiths would appear to the east of Damascus. It is recorded in writing that around 100 years ago, this Messiah, sitting in an unknown, undeveloped Indian village, which lay on the same latitude to the east of Damascus, no less, received the following revelation in the Arabic language, Bala Dimash, meaning destruction in Damascus. He prophesied the First and Second World Wars, and he also predicted that a great war would start from here. It is no secret that the Syrian civil war is the biggest crisis of our time. A conservative estimate states that over half of a million people have been killed since the Syrian civil war started in 2011. However, the number is sure to be significantly higher. Similarly, it is estimated that 11 million Syrians have fled the country since the war began. The pre-war population has been estimated to be 22 million. With different factions on the ground, including American, Russian, and Syrian government troops, Syrian rebels, and ISIS, this has become an international arena of death, a de facto playground for world war. Although world war and the crisis in Syria are signs of his truthfulness, the promised Messiah abhorred bloodshed and violence, and instead claimed that he had come to end religious wars. He said that he loved mankind with the same love that a mother loves her child, nay, even more so. What mother would not sacrifice her own peace and well-being for the sake of her child? So, one can only imagine how much the promised Messiah loved mankind. An expression of his love are his timeless words which he desired to be a means of salvation for those he loved, that is, all of humanity. It is a fire, but all those shall be saved from that fire who love God, the doer of wonders. In the name of Allah, 
most gracious and merciful dear listeners. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Peace and blessings of Allah be with you. Asim, let's go to the first segment. Uh, mm-hmm. What is the gist of the story? So, uh, the gist of the story is that it has been found that 22% of young black people reported changing their name on a job application to improve their chances of success. According to the largest ever survey of black Gen Z talent in the UK, uh, conducted the recruitment marketing agency, Taplin. This is significantly high, especially when compared with the Asian Gen Z and white Gen Z pairs, 12% and 7% respectively. So young black people changing the names and hard work to fit in with colleagues. That's why, I mean, I don't know what to say about it. It just made me sad. To be honest, though, that's my, my my impression is, the listeners, um, we will discuss this now with our first guest, Kai Shakti, who joined the team with a wealth of PAEA experience within both local and central government and has provided crucial organizational skills at director general level. With a keen interest in justice and equality, Kai attained the FDA Foundation degree in criminal justice at the University of Access and attended the Harvard X Online Course for Justice. Kai Shakti, good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Good morning, how are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. You're welcome. Um, we were discussing, like we were about to discuss about this matter, about, I think this is more about racism, basically, that uh, young black people are changing their names and their hair at work only to fit in with their colleagues. Uh, I mean, how do you weigh the fact that some people change their name to fit in with their colleagues? Um, it's it's quite a, an emotive subject. Um, the fact that young black people feel the need to change um, their name or the way they present themselves um, their hair and um, you know things like that. It's it's quite a um, an emotive subject to go quite deep into. Um, I myself, I I have actually changed my name, um, but not so much to fit in, just so um, to kind of feel more of myself. Mm-hmm. So I've gone like the opposite way, but you know I've been in um, work environment where um, I've actually been asked to change the way I wear my hair uh, to the point where I was asked whether it was possible for me to um, wear a wig. Um, at the time, I was wearing my hair quite loud and bold, um, and this wasn't deemed acceptable in the office um i did comply on that one occasion but Mm. it kind of made me take a step back and think is this the environment that i want to be working in Mm -hmm. um and subsequently i started looking for work elsewhere um but unfortunately working in the kind of field that I, i was at the time um wherever i went to it was still the same kind of conformity uh, that they were looking for at that same time anyway. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm just very proud of the way young people um, 
nowadays are reclaiming their identity and not shying away from the fact that they are from ethnic backgrounds mm-hmm. and they are celebrating the way that they look, the way that they present themselves. Um, so, yeah, I, I hope that um, answers your question to a point. Thank you very much. Yeah, it does. So, Kai, um, why do you think this happens? Society um, for ethnic minorities, they have a perception, um, a negative perception, that if you present yourself in an ethnic positive way, that you are working against the grain, that you are possibly a troublemaker. Uh, For example, um, people who wear dreadlocks, for example, are seen as aggressive to a point. Um, So it's a a negative kind of um, um, view that they have on people just by the way they present themselves rather than trying to get to know the individual themselves. You know, um, it's kind of deemed if you wear your hair um, wrapped in traditional um, cultural um, um, presentations Mm. that, again, you know, you're kind of deemed as aggressive. I myself, at one point, I used to wear head wraps um, at work and I actually noticed um, that certain colleagues that I used to um, socialise with kind of withdrew a bit because of the perception that, oh, Kai's got her head wrapped and therefore she's she's in a, a more kind of aggressive mode. Um, so eventually I did actually stop wrapping my head going to work because I, I felt that um, I wasn't being accepted as the individual that I was. So, um, yeah, I hope that answers your question. Um, Guy, thank you for that. That's quite quite an interesting insight into your your own personal experience in the matter. We we know that over the over the years, even in Asian community, and now we're seeing it in African community, where um, the, the people are changing their names to kind of fit in. But in in this day and age, there's a lot of talk about equality and diversity and integration into the society, into the workplace. So what what could we do um, to resolve this issue? What can we do? What can be done to make sure that this doesn't happen and that people are accepted for who they are, regardless of what they wear or what they have on their head or what kind of hair they have? Um, that's a very interesting point and question that you've um, raised there. Um, I'm aware of um, a school in South London, um, uh, I believe it's Sutton High School. Um, they adopted the HALO code, um, which was to stop students from being reprimanded for wearing their hair um, in the natural Afro hairstyles such as wearing braids, dreadlocks, uh, afro, you know, bantu knots um, and cornrows, etc. The the halo code itself sets out and kind of paraphrase um, the right to embrace afro hairstyles, um, including wearing headscarves and wraps as part of celebrating and embracing cultural identities. I think bold moves like that 
you know, sends out a message to uh, the community, to society, to um, kind of take a step back and reevaluate themselves. Mm. Um, so I think things like that is a, is a very, very positive step forward. Um, and and um, I'm very proud of the young people who adopted um, that HALO code. And I'm just hoping things like that will be more widespread. Um, Kai, thank you uh, for you know your personal experience you have seen. And of course, for the time you have taken out. Uh, I wish you all the best for the future and thank you again for joining. Thank you. My pleasure. You have a great day now. You, you too. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. So it's very interesting. It's also very sad to hear that people have to go through that. Um, Sharif, I mean, what? how, I mean, there's something, you know, I'm reading it and I'm listening to it as well. And to be honest, it's the first time I've listened to it. How I mean, and now listening to Kai's version, I know it's true. Um, but what is the root of the issue? So, it's it's an interesting point, and as my personal um, view on it is yeah. that we've seen it in different forms over the years. So I don't know about you guys, but I have colleagues, I have friends who have Asian names, but to fit in and to blend in, they've changed their name. So they've kind of westernized it and made it more kind of easy to say. And sometimes I can understand it. I can relate to it. So when they have difficult South Asian or Asian names, people struggle to say it. So they kind of um, shorten it or change it slightly. But the root cause of it, and I'm not sure how true it is, but I feel that they don't, the people that are doing it don't feel comfortable in themselves and and having if we're looking at the hair example exactly. they don't feel comfortable wearing their hair in their natural way because it's not seen as the norm and so if you don't have um if you take the afro american caribbean kind of hairstyle you, if you don't have a slick um mm. straight hair you have curly hair that is in cornrows or in braids it seemed to be not the norm so it's it's also kind of improves their this perception that to fit in it also improves their chances of getting recruited, and what we're seeing in that article is that forty seven percent of the black Gen Z change their names for colleagues to easily pronounce their names compared to twelve percent of the Asian Gen Z or seven percent of the white Gen Z, and the report goes on. Um, to say that I came after a review by the Equality and Human Rights Commission who found that discrimination was prevalent against Afro hairstyle in the workplace and school. Now this, uh, this is, I mean, uh, especially, you know, for me it goes directly to um, racism. But what I've seen is also that, you know, especially the name Muhammad, right? People, it's mm. one of the uh, most given name to people and they change it to Mo. Mo. Uh, I mean, yeah. I, I've seen a lot of, lot of people with your name Mo, and Arab people, and Muslim people. If you ask him what's your name, Mo, Mo is definitely not your name. It's not mm. even a meaning. Um, you should, um, sometimes people should be more brave as well. Then you should come out and say, "My name is Muhammad." Mm. Uh, and then it's very strange. It's very sad. Um, uh, the the listener said, uh, "This is something is really happening." Um, Especially, you know, about the hair change. This was something new. For, it's something new for me. Uh, we will discuss this uh, topic no further with our next guest. 
Um, we have uh, online uh, Rishi, sorry, Rishi Mata. Rish Mata. Uh, Rish, Ma Rish has more than five years of experience in the digital field, ranging from website management, videography, and graphic design, social media, and email marketing. Having studied interactive media and marketing, Rish is highly creative with experience in enhancing brand awareness and maximizing audience engagement. And from a young age, Rish has been an advocate for social change and has performed in many charities events to encourage young people to strive for greatness. Oh, that's great. He also spearheaded large campaigns with 100 plus attendees for a previous company's diversity and, in and inclusion initiative. Um, Rish, welcome and good morning to, and welcome to the Breakfast Show. Hey, hey, good morning, good morning and thank you for having me. Uh, you're welcome. Um, we we discussed in this point that um, there are some young people who change their name and even their hair color or the hairstyle only to fit in in their workplace or fit in with their colleagues. Uh, how do you feel view that fact that some people are really do that? Um, it's something even I had to do myself as well. Um, one of the main things was for me. I don't think it was so much fitting in. They're more so um, trying to make it easier for everyone because my name is uh, pronounced Parish Mata and it's, it might be a bit hard for people who ain't from African descent or um, able to speak like French or Arabic to pronounce it. So to make it easier for mm. whoever I'm talking to, I just cut it short to like Rish. I see, okay. So but are you surprised at this finding, like considering how society is much more multicultural and diverse than it was before? Why do people feel the need to do this? Um, that one is, it might just be, like I said, maybe to make things easier for people or, um, in other cases, um, it could be like a dominance thing. Cause I know at one point, um, people would generally just change, um, other people's name, just whether because they couldn't pronounce it or because they felt like they had that power. It, it pretty much depends on the, on the circumstances and the environment. Do you think that people who change their name, is it also because, as you said, you have given your own example that sometimes it's very difficult to pronounce the name, but do you think that people are also changing their name because they're scared or of like uh, um, from the expression of the person in front of him or to maybe that they face racism as well? Yeah, to some extent it, it can do with racism as well, maybe because they fear, like let's say um, when it comes to... Um, application for jobs some people may feel the need to change their name just to uh, appear more um, professional or even um, likable to be honest because certain names might be deemed um, unprofessional or even threatening to some extent so yeah uh, I can definitely see them sides as well understand um, you know, as you said, like before, uh, that some names are uh, might be threatening. I I I remember um, our friend uh, whose name is Usama, and he I remember in the beginning, like when uh, especially after the nine eleven attacks, he was very ashamed to call himself in this way as well, like ashamed but also a bit scared as well, because mm -hmm. in that sense society made fun of his name as well, but looked also different to him because he was having that name. Mm. Um, Sharif, uh, you had a question for him. Yeah, so um, Rish, thank you for joining the show. And uh, my question is, do you think that 
um, by changing their name, it changes the idea of inclusivity and um, fairness opportunity in the workplace. I would say to some extent it does. Um, maybe not in a sense of opportunity, but definitely in a sense of um, maybe um, pers personal. Um, sometimes you lose your identity the the minute you change your name, you know, because names do come with a lot of uh, a lot of background, a lot of history. So changing that, even if it's a, something as small as shortening it, does definitely do something to you personally. Uh, so yeah, that's my only point on that side. No, Rish. Um, uh, thank you uh, again. Um, you have also shared your personal experience about that as well, and for taking out the time. I wish you all the best for the future. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye bye. Right. So, do you it's, listen? It's a it's a really interesting topic, it and is. I find that it brings back to mind. I don't know if you guys remember when President Obama was elected. And there were a series of articles that were written where um, the headline were, he doesn't sound black. <laughs> and, and the same thing with Michelle Obama. She wrote an article in 2009 where she writes that she's heard things like, oh, you sound like a white girl. So uh, uh, I, that kind of connotation, that kind of in, um, stigma that's attached to someone, how they should sound, Or sometimes, oh, you don't have an accent. You look Asian, but you don't have an accent. Yeah. Or you look, you're black, but you don't have the same kind of Jamaican or African-American kind of accent. That kind of thing where society hasn't moved on and it still have those stigma attached to it. And I think this is part of it, that people are changing their names so that they're not associated with their heritage and that a negative um, stigma that's attached to it will is still there. And they try to walk away from it. No, it's, it is, as you said, it's very interesting. Um, dear listeners, if you want to take part in this segment as well, if you want to sh share your thought about that topic, you can do so. You can call in at any time at 020-8687-7878 or you can tweet us by at Voice of, at Voice of Islam UK. Um, awesome. Uh, especially about changing the name. Is it useful? Well, um, As we already discussed, you know, changing their names make it, makes it, you know, easier for them to be judged according to their character and, you know, suitability to the role rather than the name according to some. It is useful for the colleagues, not the individual who feels like they have to change their parents and name to fit in. But, you know, guys, um, for me, I believe, like, If I had to do that, if someone would tell me, yeah, listen, you need to change your name, uh, you need to change your hairstyle, your color, etc. Uh, for me, it would be like a kind of a form of discrimination. Um, and now in this day and age, you know, we say that uh, we have, you know, we have we come, we came out from that, we, we left it behind, but still we see it's still there. How can we tackle that? Um, you know, like um, black workers feel like they have been, they have to accommodate to the comfort of their white colleagues by, by you know, alterning themselves. <coughs> This creates a negative impact on their mental health and efficiency at work, causing you know anxiety, stress, hmm. and demotivation. Oh, exactly. You know, it's it's a form of discrimination in that fictional names are easier to pronounce than that of uh, you know. And names which needs to be tackled. 
Well, yeah, but um, you know, like in this environment now, uh, in this Western environment, especially, you know, we we but we are mostly from the South Asian community. Mm. Or uh, how can we make environments more inclusive and let people be themselves? Sharif. So the the um, here the European Rights Commission um, report recommends that an inclusive culture be implemented which enables staff to respect diverse cultures and also provide support for employees experiencing discrimination transparently and efficiently. So this is a really, really interesting topic because what we see is a lot of big firms um, mm. are implementing what they're calling diversity and inclusion teams where diversity is actually being celebrated. Diversity is actually being part of a of the culture of that business. What they've realized is the point that Asim was making just now is where a colleague from a different background is... Um, <laughs> sorry, we just have lost Sharif. Well, we will come back to his point he just made or he was trying to make. Uh, Asim, um, you, as I said, you are South Asian, right? Um, yeah. Have you ever felt uh, like, oh, did you feel kind of ashamed or did you feel kind of scared because of your name or you have... Personally, I've never experienced anything, honestly. Like, but like, um, in my name, yeah. No, in your name, but mm. hope, for example, like, um, in the, you're thinking like anywhere, in a, um, say Starbucks, having mm. a coffee and then you see people with blonde hair or with... I don't know, it's different type of uh, do you think like, okay, because I need to integrate or I need to be the part of a society that... No, absolutely not. No. So it's it strange, but as I said, for me, I haven't felt that as well. So the only problem I had in school was that my name starts with A, so I was the first one in everything. Oh, yeah. yeah. Same as me, like Ahmed. Yeah. And everything, they would call me in the first place, and I would be ready always. Yeah. But... <laughs> That Apologies, that, I got cut off there. Yeah, no, no worries, no worries. Um, uh, we were just, uh, you know, we were discussing that our names would start always with the f uh, first letter A, and especially in school times, we would be the first one to be called. To, <laughs> and we would always be ready now, okay, now it's, it's our time. But, you know, one thing, a good thing was about that, that after we were there, we, had, we just had to present everything and we were done. But that was the most scariest part. Sometimes you I, were the first, yeah. I was the first person in my class. So I, I had a lot I've of been always, uh, stress. <laughs> because my, you know, my name is Ahmed. Yeah. And they would call me in the beginning and I had to go. And then, uh, you know, but even what I've seen, especially about Ahmed, you know the name. I remember people would then make fun about the name sometimes as well. Oh, really? Yeah, like, um, you know... Um, if I would go like in front of the car, would present something, they would start making this normal, like this silly uh, fun um, uh, jokes about the name. Like, mm. you know, in uh, German, Ahmed Lachnet means Ahmed don't laugh. Like, you know, just oh, to make okay. these kinds of mm. any kind of. So, in, in, I grew up in a society where making fun and having banter was, was normal. So I think we need, we draw the line where it becomes malicious, mm. where you're making fun to ridicule or to kind of cause harm to the other person. And this is where also here, when you're talking about in the workplace, it's kind of gone the uh, to, a bit to the extreme 
and understandably so, because it's a really fine line to draw between banter and what making fun in a malicious way is. Mm. And this is why we're seeing the rise of people changing their names. People want to fit in. They want to look like the other colleagues. They don't want to stand out. But what research I've shown is those people feel marginalized and they are not able to perform at their best. So they don't bring the values that they can bring to the team. So if somebody cannot be themselves in a team by the way they look or because of their hair or because of their name, they automatically kind of um, shield themselves. They kind of become more reserved. And, and I've seen it in my own team where people are not able to express themselves, whether it's for fear of being ridiculed or for fear of, what the other colleagues will think. And you can add on top of that the complexity of how they look, what their hair looks like, and all these kind of things. That creates a different dimension in itself where those people are not able to perform. So you They're not able to kind of develop their own skills to the full extent of their capability. So you're saying that, um, especially changing the name and the look, uh, it brings also a big lack of confidence into the people. A exactly, because... You're, you're almost questioning your own being. Why am I different? Mm -hmm. Why am I um, having to do these things and how we develop these, these skills and these mentality because you're marginalized from the get-go. So by people making comment about your hair, people making comment about your name, making all these kind of things. So all of that makes people think differently. No, and this is why also um, Sharif, uh, we need to okay. go for the news break. Uh, yeah. Do you listen, stay with us. We'll be back after the news break. Thank you. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful, dear listeners, welcome back to the breakfast show. You're listening to the Voice of Islam radio. The Voice of Islam radio is presented to and beautiful teachings of Islam broadcasting from the biggest mosque of UK. And uh, we were talking about people who changing their names and look only to fit in in the society. Um, it's a big, huge topic, dear listeners. If you want to be a part of this, you can do so and you can call in at any time at 020-86-877-878 or you can tweet us by at Voice of Islam UK. Um, so, for me, I'm, um, it is kind of discrimination and racism as well. But I, I know that this was tackled also in the time of the Holy Prophet where he would go and set up against racism. Sharif. In, indeed. And, um, and it's a beautiful um, saying of the Holy Prophet. And what we peace know, peace and blessing of Allah be upon him, what we know has um, the farewell speech that he delivered has the last um, speech before um, he returned to his Lord. So in that, is the teaching that he taught us was, O oh people, your Lord is one. You are the progeny of the same Father who was created from dust. Hence, it is not permissible for you to make any discrimination mm. between high and low. You know, this is very you interesting, Shadi. Sorry, I'm uh, sorry. You. Yep. Where you just have mentioned that, O oh people, your Lord is one. You are the progeny of the same Father who was created from dust. You know, the meaning of dust explaining that that we have basically the same value we are basically mm. the same it's 
we shouldn't consider us more than that mm. and we shouldn't uh, I mean, put people lower than that as well we are the same basically we are the same and it's very mm. interesting you have pension and all because this reminds me as well that who, who I'm actually uh, who I am I'm just a simple person who was made from dust and that's it and I should consider myself like this as well I should be very humble it reminds me to be humble as mm. well sorry Sharif I'm cutting you off in, no indeed and um, the holy prophet peace and blessing of Allah be upon him continues to say that neither an Arab has superiority over mm. a non-Arab nor a non-Arab over an Arab a white person is not superior to a black person nor a black person superior to a white person the most honorable among you in the sight of god is the one who is the most righteous no it's that um, truly amazing quote of holy prophet peace be upon him and that was made 1500 years ago where he was reminding mm. us again that mm. there shouldn't be any discrimination between each other and that we are the same we have one god and he or the one who should make happy and that we should be very mm. righteous uh no um i know that uh even from his companion we had one very famous one who uh, was uh, also like he was from africa as well and uh, the way he was treated was very amazing as well isn't it yes absolutely it is yeah, yeah. i mean um uh is it bilal uh his name was bilal and uh, he was the first one who was also had a duty to to call the people for the prayer and this is even now nowadays among the muslim one of the most honorable duty you can have to call to give the call for prayer and uh especially you know the, the way he was looked or the way he was considered as he was considered as one of the chiefs of the muslim and um, that's you know this is how muslim have treated people from different backgrounds mm. or from a background from an african background and then this is you know this is actually islam and this is correct of the holy prophet as he used to have it's awesome. amazing i mean it's very very uh, uh beautiful and yeah uh, wonderful to see that also um you know addressing a large gathering of people a uh, prophet muhammad peace and blessings of allah be upon him addressed the same thought in the following words that you are brothers and sisters you are all equal no matter to which nation or tribe you belong and no matter what your status is mm-hmm. you are equal just as the fingers of both hands alike nobody can claim to have any distinctive right or greatness over another the command which i gave you today is not just for today but it is forever always remember to and keep acting upon it until you return to your true master amazing uh, as i said you know um, guys to be honest you will agree with me you know if in this day and age especially in this day and age if people would act upon that we wouldn't have this problem i think everything will be sorted everything yeah. will be sorted um, and uh, uh, islam is a religion you know especially you know if you if you look like in in the community in our community in the muslim community uh and next week we will have a big gathering as well mm-hmm. largest ga- gathering yeah. muslim gathering in the uk and mm-hmm. there you can see that especially for example when we stand up for the prayer uh, you mm-hmm. see that people from different backgrounds will stand in one row we have will have people from the african community from the arab community from the asian community from the europe community from the south america community 
Um, and if you look, if you have like, if you are watching this on the television, it's such an amazing view to see people from different backgrounds um, standing uh, next to each other as brothers, and then praying to the, that one God as well. And this is what, uh, as Sharif has already mentioned, the quote of the Holy Prophet that the only thing Allah is looking for is righteousness, and this is what we should mm. strive for. So this is Islam, basically, you know. Islam is a beautiful religion. Islam is teaching us to be nice to each other and to respect the background of each other. Yeah, absolutely. So even the current caliph has, you know, told us during one of his speeches that we shouldn't have any inferiority complex, you know. He said when you talk to them in this way, then those who are interested, they will ask you more about religion. Uh, those mm. who are not interested, they will just leave you. And it is even quite possible they will laugh at you, but never mind them. Mm. Don't have an inferiority complex that they are mocking you. You yourself have to create an atmosphere around you that people themselves ask you what is religion. No, this is something you know motivates you as well to to be brave as well. Dear listeners, is a vast uh, topic. Uh, we can discuss it furthermore because Islam is telling us what to do. Islam is giving us guidance according how to treat people in the best way. Well, unfortunately, we have to go to the, sec the second segment. If you think that, or if you know any more quotes of the Holy Prophet, how he has tackled racism in his time, you can call it at any time at 020-8687-7878, or you can tweet it by at Voice of Islam UK. We will go for a short break. Stay with us. We will be back after a few seconds. Yeah. The Majestic, the one who is above any evil, defect and deficiency due to his greatness and grandeur. All praise is due to Allah, to whom belongs whatever is in the heavens and whatever is in the earth, and his is all praise in the hereafter. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful, dear listeners, well, welcome back to the breakfast uh, show. Um, guys, um, you know, this topic, cemeteries, cemeteries, sorry, uh, this is about cemeteries now. Before we, we go to the just, I, I just have a question I, I need to ask you guys now. What is the last time you went to see a cemetery? I think it's been uh, quite a while for me, actually. Really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's actually good because it means that you haven't suffered. But whenever we go um, to Farnham, mm -hmm. where we have our mosque there, Mubarak Mosque in Islamabad, I always go to our fourth caliph's grave. So this means you, because you said you haven't been there for a long okay, time. Okay, uh, oh no, okay, look, apart from that. Apart yeah, from that, yeah. okay. Now, Baba usually. All right, okay. I haven't been in. Um, I normally go to Brookwood or the uh, the one in Morden. I haven't been for a few months now. The last time I was was in February. I like like Asim. I visited the grave of His Holiness the Fourth Caliph um, in in Farnham. But the one thing I do make a point of doing, and this is the first thing and the last thing I do when I visit Mauritius, is I visit the. Um, the cemetery 
where my grandparents, my mm-hmm. aunts, uncles, cousins are buried. Mm-hmm. So that is a something that my parents have always taught me that you always go and and do dua there and prayers there and then I go and visit the people because every time I go it's become that kind of time now we're living in where every every year that I've been somebody in the family have passed away because they've all reached that kind of mature age now so I make it um, it's a duty on myself and my parents always told me that when we go, we go back to visit um, the cemetery and do prayers. Now, you know, um, well, I've often have felt as that, especially the time I've spent with my friends and who, those who have passed away, may Allah um, bless them and give them a lofty space in paradise. Um, when I go to their grace and then I just realize that basically, you know, a few years ago, we have spent time together. Now hmm. he has gone. It reminds me as well that Time is very short, and we should do the best of it. I mean, we, we, mm. In the previous uh, segment, we were talking about we, we, were, we were talking about righteousness, and then this reminds me that how far I'm actually from being a righteous person, and what I have to do. It's basically also a good reminder that our life is still going on, but it can also come to an end, and um, that we um, need to remind ourselves as well that. We should do the best of it, and we should how that we should please our Lord for uh, in this world, especially in this world. And and it's a reminder. If the one, the one thing that we know will happen is we will pass away, and, mm. and it's that constant reminder that this is where we're going to end up, mm. regardless of what we have, what we did on this earth. We will end up in some form of a symmetry. Indeed. Um. Awesome. What is the gist basically, uh, basically of the story? So the gist of the story is that is there a better way to feel connected with the meaning of life as by walking among the dead? The article author says how every time she wanders through the cemetery near her inner city, Brisbane House, she thinks about the people who once walked the land upon which she walks now, who were warmed by the same sun. Interesting, uh, the listeners, as you know, we are talking about cemeteries, we are talking about death and the feeling we have when we are there and when we are buried one of our beloved. Um, right now we have Sarah Jones with us. Uh, she's a founder of Full Circle Funerals, a modern funeral director supporting people across Yorkshire and Cheshire. Everything we do supports people to find connection after bereavement. This is, I think, one of their mottos. Um, Sarah... Uh, good morning and welcome to the Breakfast Show. Good morning. Thank you for um, thank you for inviting me. Um, you're most uh, welcome. Um, it's um, we appreciate that you have uh, taken out your time for that. Um, about you, uh, um, uh, foundation about that full circle funeral. Uh, can you tell us more about it, please? Sure. Okay. Yeah. So, well, I started um, my working life as a doctor. And then um, I have always believed that funerals are really important hmm. and um, that people uh, being able to create um, opportunities in a space for people to create a funeral that's, that's right for them is, is really helpful. So I wanted to take everything I'd learned from health and social care and then apply it to funerals. So that's why I opened Full Circle and hopefully <laughs> that's what we're doing. 
Thank you very much, Sarah. That's very interesting. So, um, what impact do cemeteries and graveyards have on people? And do you agree if people say that there is a positive impact? Yeah, so um, absolutely. So we uh, support lots of people to arrange burials in a variety of different places. Um, so different types of graveyards and in different parts of, of the country. And many, many people will reflect back that um, the cemetery is a really special place. And uh, for, for lots of people, somewhere that they continue to go back to because it helps them to feel connected to the person who's died, connected to other members of the family, connected mm. to the wider community. And we also know of many people who choose to then become part of the cemetery community, so part of friends of cemetery groups or part of um, groups of people who work together to make sure that the, the cemetery is looked after well and continues to be a really positive space. And, and lots of people tell us that they have some really important conversations while they're there because most people are there because um, they want to remember somebody, they recognise it's an important space, either in a, with a religious perspective, a spiritual perspective, or, or just on a personal level. And so it's, it's a really important part of most communities would be what the people that we support tell us. Um, Sarah, thank you for your insight. Um, what kind of support is given after the bereavement? So... Um, it really, it, well, it depends. I guess I can only speak about what we do. So um, we, my view is that many people who experience bereavement um, meet a funeral director and might not meet that many other people. Um, so they might be fortunate and be part of a community or they might not, in which case they might feel quite isolated. So um, we, we're not bereavement counsellors, but what we have a, a bereavement support group. So people get together on a monthly basis and just share their um, their experiences and listen and and contribute as they want to and I know that that's very supportive for the people who come and there's also I think the key is knowing what's available because actually in every area there are a number of um, local uh, bereavement support opportunities and national ones there are many things on social media there are opportunities for people to have telephone support group support one-to-one -one. and there are also some really specialist um places to find support so for example in Leeds there's a, a group called Hope Bereavement Support who specifically specialise in in um, meeting the needs maybe of, of um, communities like some of the listeners that you might have so there is an awful lot available often the challenge is finding it and it's often not something you're looking for until you suddenly need it and of course then you're already in quite a challenging circumstance so I think my advice would be there is a lot available and if anyone who's listening is looking for something, um, then search online if you're happy to do that and if not, maybe reach out to either a local charity or maybe a local funeral director who might um, be able to signpost you and, and make that a little bit easier to reach people who can help you. Uh, Sarah John, thank you. Uh, it's very interesting and especially for the uh, advice you gave in the end. Um, something uh, we can take benefit from it. Um, thank you for joining and uh, I wish you all the best for the future. Thank you. Take care. You Bye. Dear listeners, um, we have a question for you as well as Asim has asked about positive impact. If you have any positive impact, you can call in at any time at 020 
8687788 or you can tweet us by at voice of islam uk meanwhile sharif will tell us what positive impact he had when he visited the graveyard in Mauritius. <laughs> um uh, i mean one uh, one positive nothing, impact nothing like putting me on the spot huh um <laughs> no the, the, for me the the, the, it's it's a remembrance yeah, yeah. Um, of twofold. The one is of the people that you love and cared for, or rather the people that loved and cared for me. So these are my grandparents, my uncles and aunts that I knew very well growing up. And is going there, making sure that, you know, um, small things like their grave is, is clean, it's tidy. Mm -hmm. You know, like we have this tradition in, in Islam where plants and stuff like that, we don't allow them to grow on the graves. So we don't put flowers, we don't do anything. So we clean it, tidy it. It's a sign of respect, it's a sign of um, appreciation um, and remembrance of what they did for us. So I've got a very close relationship with my aunts, my mum's sisters, and, you know, it's kind of remembering them, remembering what they did for me. Um, for the family and and those kind of things, so it gives me keeps me grounded in that sense to how close we were and and the family that I had. But like I was saying earlier, it also the true reality of it is this is where we're going to end up. This is where I'm going to end up, and it keeps me. I'm almost want to say humble, but in itself, that kind of sensation that that feeling. This is where I'm going to be. This is where I'm going to go. It's that acceptance that death is part of life. It's part of what we have to experience, what we go through. And this life is temporary. This is what Islam teaches us, that this life is going to come to an end. It's but an enjoyment for a small period of time. And what's to come after that is the real, um, mm. the real um, blessing, the real gift that Allah has given us. So it's kind of remembering all these things and also just kind of keeping myself connected to the people that I loved and that loved me. So, yeah, it's a good good reminder. Um, uh, Asim, now coming to you. Uh, you have, as I said, you have visited the cemeteries. Uh, well, it's been a while for you, though. But how does it feel? Are there... Also, like we talk about positive feelings, but are there also negative feelings? Well, aside from many people, you know, visiting your loved ones after they have been buried at the you know, cemetery provides comfort and peace uh, that they don't experience elsewhere. Uh, for this, it might be, a, you know, serve as a very stark reminder of the reality of your loss. It can help uh, with accepting the truth and can help move you closer to healing you know there's a certain connectedness that can only be experienced at their burial site people visit grave sites and chat with the one they've lost uh, you know sharing news events etc and um, cemeteries are quite peaceful and you know offer a lot of green space and trees uh, which can provide a good backdrop for a quiet reflection you know, grieving families can also seek closure. No, uh, indeed. Um, it's very interesting, uh, you know. Uh, for me, especially, you know, if, if I look into positive side, um, for me, the, the one positive side I see is, that, again, that I have this reminder in front of me. 
mm-hmm. that uh, mm-hmm. you know um, one day after goes well and I need to be prepared, right? Mm. Uh, we will because we Muslims we believe that we will meet our Creator and uh, of course we will go empty-handed over there or to Him, but somehow we still can prepare everything for us that when we meet Him that He be, might be happy that He is pleased with us. Yeah, especially if we, if you've got friends who lost their lives, you know it. It's it's a shock, but it's also a reminder that, you know, anything can happen, anything and can happen. you should be prepared and actually be ready now. I mean, um, we see the children losing a lot of lives, mm-hmm. and then people growing up and the youngsters they're losing a lot of their lives, and so life is uh, something you can't say that when it comes to an end. Um, therefore, as you said, preparation is very important, and how do we do that? Um, as we, as I said, the most important thing is that we try to increase in righteousness, that we try to please our God, and that we listen and follow the um, the practice of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. And the best thing to do that, to follow the practice of the Holy Prophet, is also to listen to the voice of his, his, the current head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. So these are some preparations we can make. Of course, there are many, many more as well. And the best thing is that to ask Allah to help us to be prepared when we meet Him. Absolutely. As I said, uh, it's it's a reminder, dear listeners. Uh, if you have a visit to cemetery, tell us about your view. How do you see? How do you feel when you go and visit uh, a cemetery? Cemetery, sorry. You can call in at any time at o two o eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight, or you can tweet us by at Voice of Islam UK. Um, uh, of course, um, you know, one thing uh, is that what is the positive side? Or like, I mean, what else do we have as positive side? Well, uh, Sally, you know, it helps with grieving process mm-hmm. and brings comfort. So, you know, you have people who cannot get over it that the, the loved ones has passed away. So it can be, a, it, it can help, you know, in grieving. It can see closure, you can have a peaceful sitting, pay respect. Uh, for some, it also helps strengthen their family bonds. So th- these are some positive side, um, you know, of visiting a cemetery. No, indeed. Uh, it is. Um, uh, some, uh, Sharif, talking about cemetery, one thing comes to my mind that it's an invention, of course. Uh, how how did like how did people like invented cemeteries? It's 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 a very interesting question because it's not something that we normally think of. Where does it come from? So the idea of cemetery are thought to have first come about in the seventh century, when burials were firmly controlled by the church in Europe. The church was the only institution allowed to bury the dead. There were no, no grounds to bury the dead aside from the church. However, the population in Europe began to grow. The capacity of the graveyards were, was quickly surpassed. Graveyards were no longer sufficient as a burial place. People were being buried on top of each other. Graves were sometimes even dug up to, to, create, um, to create space for the burial of other bodies. As a result, people began to seek new places to bury the dead. This became even more urgent 
as the health risk of overcrowded graveyards became apparent, garden cemeteries were therefore adopted. By the end of the 18th century, these these were run by the government bodies and private companies. So this is an interesting um, subject: is that we're um, we're seeing that Europe in Europe it only started in the 7th century, but if you go to other civilization like the Egyptians, the Mayans, and and so forth, they had burial grounds all the way back to um, far before um, in Europe, and we see it even in the pagans in Europe, where we're seeing um, graveyards or burial grounds, but what it was called um, around in in Europe that predates the the church. Talking about you know church now uh, because you uh, you've mentioned church as well and it's very interesting that you know so many things about history as well. It's good to have that general knowledge though. Um, but yeah, um, because you, as I said, you've mentioned the church. Um, there are many many cultures we have seen uh, or ways how people are getting buried, and uh, it's a different style of religion as well. Um, so, Arsene, can you enlighten us in this as well? How are people buried across the globe? Absolutely. So, um, Sile, a practice varies widely between, you know, different Christian denominations and around the world. Roman Catholicism and the Orthodox churches still strongly favor a burial over cremation due to a belief in the physical, uh, you know, resurrection of the body. In some Orthodox traditions, services are held um, eight days, thirty days, and one year after death. Islam teaches that the body resides in the coffin until the day of judgment. This is a period of trial where angels will continue, uh, you know, the person about their beliefs and practices. Uh, the coffin will seem like a paradise for the righteous, whereas for the unrighteous, it will be. Uh, torture. On the day of judgment, a horn will be blown and the dead will be, uh, you know, resurrected to face final judgment. And if you talk about um, Hindus' beliefs that, you know, the Atman or the self of the person who has died will be reincarnated or will reach uh, Moksha. In different Hindu traditions, Moksha may be interpreted as either as becoming one with ultimate um, Brahman, most Hindus are cremated. And if you talk about Judaism, um, they, have, they have, you know, no clear, um, uh, you know, unam because uh, teaching about uh, life after that. Mm -hmm. uh, Jewish scriptures describe God as the king of the living. Righteous behavior is rewarded with long life, prosperity and children where a post-mortem existence is mentioned. It is a shadowy half-life in the underworld. Because of the belief in resurrection, religious Jews tend to be buried rather than cremated. So like Hindus, Sikhs believe in the reincarnation with the Atman passing through different births until it achieves mukti or liberation. Uh, most Sikhs are uh, cremated after that. It is very interesting uh, mm -hmm. that, you know, you have mentioned the religious um, backgrounds of these people, how they are got buried. I remember, um, I don't know if you have studied the, the old Egyptian, 
in school, but I remember that when they got buried, they would take out few organs organs from mm-hmm. the body from the dead people. Okay. Like brain from the nose, etc. Mm-hmm. Because I don't know why, but they believe that they will be back after fifty years from the death. But I still don't know why they took out the brain though. But anyhow, uh, this is like um, some some people have this belief as well that they think that they will return back mm-hmm. from the death. Yeah. And um, after a c- uh, short while. Different beliefs, different ways of, uh, um, uh, uh, well, um, dear listeners, um, we have uh, now with us uh, Peter Bolt. I'm very delighted to to, uh, to, uh, to say that we have him with us. Um, he is basically, uh, well, it's a big, uh, big introduction about him. Uh, the best thing is, oh, we just call him in. Um, Peter, uh, good morning and welcome to the Breakfast Show. Uh, good morning to you. Um, very interesting to have you with us. Uh, we are talking about a very interesting topic as well about cemetery. Uh, I don't know, maybe most people are scared to talk about this topic or what I've heard is now that people feel positive about this as well when they go and visit these things. Um, uh, before um, uh, we come to that point, um, I want to know, what is BACSA? Right, BACSA is the British Association for Cemeteries in South Asia. Uh, we're a small charity. We were founded in 1977 um, with the aim of doing what we could to record and conserve um, the old European cemeteries in South Asia. And, and for historical reasons, as you could guess, um, the concentration is in uh, the, the old cemeteries in India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh. And what happened was that uh, our founder, he visited India after many years, and he saw uh, many of the uh, old European cemeteries um, uh, in a poor state, sort of uncared for and, and deteriorating and suffering from encroachment and so on. And he said, really, uh, this is you know part of the heritage of of." Um, uh, the subcontinent and the UK, and we must do something about it. And so he started BAXA uh, to try to record and and conserve uh, these hundreds of cemeteries uh, in that part of the world. Thank you very much for the introduction of that. Um, so, Peter, um, how can cemeteries be used as a place for reflection? Uh, we we think they have all kinds of possibilities. Um, in, in the subcontinent, particularly, uh, there are many, uh, they are very old, they go back to the 18th century, and they are now in what are you know, b- uh, city centers, busy, urban, congested areas. But some of them are quite large, uh, uh, two or three acres or more, and they uh, have the potential to be a green lung, a green space, uh, a space for... Um, uh, calm and repose, um, a thinking space. So very much a potential community asset. That's how we how we see their possibility uh, for the wider uh, community uh, where they are situated. Um, amazing. Uh, Sharif, I believe you have a question for him as well. Yes, Peter, welcome um, to the show and thank you for taking the time with us this morning. Okay. Um, one of the things we can say is that every grave, every person that's buried there has a story. 
which means there are many more stories within the cemetery that people may never know. So what, what does that, how does that impact us? Well, I think um, you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, you, you look at these uh, headstones in the cemetery with an inscription and, and details, and you wonder, well, how come they came to India? What happened? What went wrong? Why did they die? What was their family background? And um, it's, it's a fascinating for people who are interested in history generally and, and anyone interested in the historical uh, uh, links, the bonds between South uh, subcontinent particularly and the UK, uh, there's a great minefield um, of uh, history, both uh, f- from the family history point of view, but also culturally and historical. Uh, so there's, there's, there's plenty that's, for anyone interested in history, is, is, is fascinatingly interesting. I can you know, give you one or two examples of, of, of that sort of thing. Um, would, would you would you mind giving us those examples in terms of what what have you seen that kind of brings her, brings it home between the British, um, the UK, and the South Indian community? Well, for example, in in uh, Kolkata um, uh, lies uh, Sir William Jones, who was he founded the Asiatic Society of Bengal in 1785. Um, he was an Orientalist. He knew the uh, uh, languages of the subcontinent, and he founded what is now, still is, a very important and famous society in uh, in India. And uh, then in, in St. Mary's Cemetery in Chennai, in South India, we have uh, James Anderson, who was um, a botanist, and he, he set up the... Uh, uh, Chennai Botanical Gardens, and he brought sugarcane, uh, American cotton, English apples to to India. Uh, so there's there's another example. And then closer to home, to my family, I I discovered um, a a baby who would have been a great great uncle of mine, uh, who died as a baby in 1873. And I, uh, we found I haven't been there yet. I want to go there. Uh, we found that he's buried in Sitapur. In, in Lucknow. So you might say, well, what was a little child of five months um, mm. doing in India? How did he come to be there? What happened? Mm. And then my, well, one of my, my uh, uh, grandf- uh, great-grandfathers, uh, he, he is buried in Azamgur in, in Uttar Pradesh in, in, in India. And he ran an indigo estate. So there's a whole history about how did he come? Why did he come to India? What was he doing running an indigo estate? So it's, it's a great... Um, opportunity to to do some very interesting uh, research. No, you basically opened like a wider, uh, uh, interesting thing for us. That I never thought in this way that you can go and you can uh, look for you entries uh, as well. Uh, it's it's very interesting what you just said, um, Peter. I have one question as well. Um, as you 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 have spent your time in India as well. How is Malaki in the Western society? You clean up the cemetery. How is the situation over there in the South Asian community? Do they look after the cemetery? It's very difficult because the the the, the almost all of them they are uh, now the responsibility for, for for caring and and some many of them are still in use of of the local community, the local Christian community, and um, they are very small. They don't have much money. 
And so faced with a large cemetery with uh, graves going back, you know, 150, 200 years, it's very difficult for them to maintain them in a tidy space. And so that's why we're, we're encouraging uh, local communities, um, not just the Christian community responsible for the cemetery, but the outside one to, to realize that these aren't abandoned, lost, in some cases, rubbish dumps, but they have the potential uh, to be an asset for the whole community. Mm. And a very good example of that, uh, they are the trailblazer for this um, approach, is uh, the Scottish cemetery in Kolkata. It's an urban area. They brought in the local community. They have classes and for children, for adults there, and they are building up also uh, the the, the uh, protection of the environment because they you plant trees and, and, and bushes, which are very good for the environment to make it an attractive, quiet, restful uh, state. So it's not just the Christians... Uh, looking after it, it it's, it's really for, for everybody who lives around to see it as a benefit for everyone. Now, Peter, um, if you have the chance, uh, there is a cemetery in Kadian, a town called Kadian in Punjab, called Bishti Makbra, the Heavenly Garden. Uh, if you have the chance, you could uh, should visit that cemetery as well. It's very interesting because over there, members of our community are buried, especially the founder of this community is buried there as well. And uh, you can see that over there is this different atmosphere as well, a spiritual atmosphere as well. If you have the chance, um, I would recommend you should also visit uh, that town, Guardian, and especially the cemetery over there. And yes, please do, yes. If so, I, I didn't quite catch the name, but if somebody can just send me for your people, ah, you can. put them in touch with me with the details, and I'll I'll have a look and see 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 what it's all about. Oh, we, we certainly will do that. Uh, Peter, thank you again for joining the Breakfast Show. I wish you all the best for the future. Thank you very much for the invitation. Thank you. Thank you. So, do you listen? Do you just listen to Peter Bloom, who is, has been um, secretary of the BACS, BACSA since 2014 and a member of the executive committee before that, and of course he has uh, spent his working career in a diplomatic service. He served in Mumbai and Dhaka, and ended his career as High Commissioner to Cameroon. So interesting what his achievement, what he has done. He was born in India as well, has a strong link to India. Um, the listeners, um, and we will go now to... Uh, before and, uh, that, before we carry on with the segment, sorry, we will come to our next guest. It is Dr. Katie McClymont, who is an Associate Professor and Programmer Leader in Urban Planning at UWE Bristol. Her teaching and research interests include community participation, cemeteries, and public spaces and planning theory. Uh, recent projects include UK and international research and council-founded work that explore cemeteries in multi-phase and multicultural urban settings, the unspoken and intangible values community assets, and the post-concert space in planning factors and how this impacts on design quality. Dr. Katie, um, good morning and welcome to The Big Four Show. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, um, we appreciate that you have taken out the time to be with us here today. Uh, can we find? Uh, I come straight to my first question. Uh, can we find much difference among cemeteries in different faiths and cultures? Yes, um, I think very much so. So, a lot of my research and experience has um, 
mainly been in the UK, but also Northwest Europe. I was um, very briefly hearing the end of the previous interview you had there, which was um, sounded like it's coming from a different context. So uh, again, from what I've seen, there's a lot of difference between sort of who owns cemeteries, what they look like, and things around the rules um, about burial within cemeteries. So in the UK anyway, majority are owned by local authorities, but the real mixture of what that ends up looking like, how they end up organising that, the size and location of those. There's also um, cemeteries owned by religious organisations. Again, in the UK, historically, there had been lots of Jewish cemeteries with um, more Muslim ones um, being developed and being negotiated at the moment. But there's also privately owned cemeteries, often woodland or natural burial, again there. Um, across Europe, cemeteries are often quite green, quite, with lots of trees, lots of grass across northwest Europe and the UK, whereas in southern Europe, the sort of different styles, um, more of raised mausoleums there. So that's, there's quite a contrast there. But within Northern Europe, there's very much that sense of cemeteries as a, as a green space, a bit like a park, which might be something we go on to talk about a little bit more. Um, and then something which is also quite interesting around different, um, different cultures, different contexts around cemeteries are some of the things around the rules on burial. So within the UK and Ireland, there's an assumption that burial will be in perpetuity. You have your burial slot and you're buried there and you remain there. But that's not the same across um, other European contexts. It can be more common for graves to be reused after maybe 30 years. Um, that often shocks people that have grown up in a context with having graves perpetually. And then maybe you'd have to negotiate. You could extend your um, time in that plot. So... In places where grave spaces is reused, cemeteries have maybe quite a different sort of um, feel. They don't necessarily become closed in the same way. So in the UK, there are many cemeteries which are full, not going to take any more burials, but that space has to remain there. So then that's quite interesting as to what you do with that, who uses that, what sort of place does that become. Thank you very much, um, Dr. Katie. Um, for the insight. Um, so the question is that I have is that should we encourage people to visit cemeteries more? And what can be, you know, learned by visiting them? Thank you. Um, yeah, I don't think I would necessarily sort of put a call out for everybody, go, go straight to the cemetery, go and have a look around <laughs> immediately. I'm not sure what the cemeteries would think if there's suddenly hordes of people coming into them but they are um i obviously visit cemeteries a lot through my research um i just drag my family around them um i think they're very valuable places for lots of reasons mm -hmm. so as i said particularly in northwest europe and in the uk they are um often attractive green spaces with mature trees and there's a lot of research that's been done which links um accessing green space to positive benefits for both physical and mental health. And I think lots of people maybe experienced that in a different way through the COVID pandemic lockdowns, accessing that local space. And for many people, especially in urban areas, a cemetery might be that most local green space. So being able to offer those good benefits of being out there, being in nature, being with trees, having maybe slightly better air quality, um, don't know that for definite, depends on the size and things like that. But also, I think cemeteries are very 
interesting to visit for people to um, think about learning and learning about local history, learning about the history of the place, the diversity of the place, seeing names and dates that maybe people wouldn't necessarily expect, seeing people's own individual stories, often particularly in urban areas where people have migrated either locally or internationally to them. You can read inscriptions that say somebody maybe was born several thousand miles away but then had a lot of attachment to their barber's shop on the local high street. So you get real personal stories Mm. by exploring cemeteries as well as that wider sense of these being places, places that maybe offer something a bit different than other green spaces do, offer something a little bit um, calmer, and quieter and um, we're very interested me and some colleagues to find out a bit more about does do cemetery spaces offer that do they offer that to all people people of different ages people of different backgrounds um, who would who would actually go out there and maybe use that cemetery space in a more recreational way um, Dr Katie this is this is really good and it's a really good insight and if I may one of the things that I've always found intriguing is I, I live in the Cotswold, not far from yourself, from Bristol, um, in Stroud. Right. And one of the things that I've, I, when I moved here, I noticed around it, and I think I inherited that from my, my parents, is that we're, we're surrounded by local churches, local cathedrals. You've got the abbey and everything around, so Gloucester Cathedral and, and, and whatnot around. And every time you go into one of them, and I've, I've visited quite a few of them over the last few years, you notice that in the in the abbey in the cathedral you have graves in there outside you'll have the cemetery you'll have the people that are from the local community that are buried outside but inside the cathedral you'll have um king so for example in gloucester cathedral you'll have um i forgot i think henry the seventh is buried there and and you'll have those kind of memorial but on the ground you'll see there are tombstones here lies so and so died in the 1800s, 1700s. Is that a normal practice in the UK that they'll have those kind of memorial, or is that an actual tomb that's there? And are we allowed to, is it culturally okay to walk on them? Because in Islam, for example, we're not allowed to walk on a grave. We have to walk around them. But when you're in a cathedral or in a church, they're all around us on the ground, um, on the path that we normally walk on. What's what's the right way to approach that? That's a really good question. Thank you. Um, it's really interesting. Um, my understanding of that sort of more monumental places like cathedrals is partly those tombs would be for the very important people, like you're saying, kings, lords, and abbots. And then the stones on the floor may or may not relate to to tombs, or maybe to an under. Um, an area is not necessarily directly under that tomb, but within the crypt of the cathedral. But oh, okay. also that in the history of um, cathedrals and abbeys, and I know a colleague had been doing some research at Bath Abbey, that often places just reuse the stone, just for a bit of recycling. The graveyard had moved around, something had fallen down, nice bit of stoneware there, and keeping that in. It may sound very odd, but we're very used to a culture of having engraved stone marking one grave but that wouldn't necessarily have happened maybe I'm, I'm not a historian so any historians that are listening will tell me how inaccurate I'm being on this in <laughs> um, 
early modern and the middle ages that, that there was more of a more of a reuse of some of those things um but your question about what should you do and how should you behave i think is really really fascinating because that comes up all the time just in contemporary cemeteries it said that they offer lots of benefits maybe around green space some people like walking their dogs in green space some people do not like dogs in cemeteries at all and think they should be banned entirely. So there's, I think there's lots of conversations that we need to have about what, what's appropriate, what feels right, what feels right, when and where and to who, and how can we make these spaces um, inclusive? No, it's... Uh, uh, oh, go on. Sorry. Uh, go on, Shahir. Yeah, sorry. sorry. No, it's very interesting um, uh, to uh, what, you, what, especially about the interesting statement you have given us about cemetery. Um, Dr. Katie, um, thank you for joining, and uh, I wish you all the best for the future. Thank you. Thank you. So, dear listeners, um, if you have stories to share about UV, about your experience about cemetery, you can do so. You can call in at any time at 020-86-877-878, or you can tweet us at, at Voice of Some UK. So, uh, guys, um, cemetery. What is? I mean, Islam is giving us guidance about everything. We have talked this about as well. Um, 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 should if you yes. Sorry, before we go on to the Islamic point of view, we have our next guest. Oh, on please, the line. please introduce him. So, yeah, Dr. Julie Rugg. Um, Dr. Julie Rugg is a senior <laughs> research fellow in the School of Business and Society at the University of York. Cemeteries are a principal research interest and have been studying this subject for over 35 years. So, Dr. Rugg, thank you for taking the time this morning and welcome and peace and blessing of Allah be upon you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, I'll go straight in because we're a bit short of time into my first question. How did the concept of cemeteries begin and what makes it different from cremation or are people more interested in cremation than before? Well, very generally, for the most part, since the Iron Age, for very many thousands of years, um, burial has been the principal way that we've, we've dealt with the dead. And certainly that's the case in Islam, that for the most part, people prefer burial to cremation. And that's the case, if you look around the globe, actually, the majority, the vast majority of people are buried. But there are some cultures that do favor cremation, we know Hindus and Sikhs, for example, favor cremation. And, and there's large parts of Europe where cremation is a majority option for a lot of people. But in the UK, for example, we've got something like 80-90% cremation rates. We've got a very large proportion of people who are cremated in the UK. But obviously there's some communities that simply don't favor cremation. And, and that, that includes um, you know, the Muslim community in particular. That, that's, that's very interesting. And... Um, I think it's it's one of the areas that we we tend to be associated we with depressed um, as a subject. So, and people tend to feel cemeteries are a sad and depressing subject. How can we encourage people to visit those? I think what you find is that in the many of our really big towns and cities, cemeteries were established in the 19th century, and and their their history means that they're full. It, often they are very mature. Um, landscapes with old trees, um, lots and lots of sort of wooded areas, full of life, full of birds, full of vibrancy. Um, our local cemetery, it was opened in 1830. I often walk around it, and it's just a, a lovely place to be. It's very calm. 
it's very serene, it's quite tranquil, it takes you away from the road and the busyness of life. And yes, okay, you know, there are people buried there, but actually, in walking around the site, you can see that all of these people are expressing love for each other. So I actually find it quite a positive place to be, because it's a place full of life and a place full of love as well. I, I agree. And finally, does visiting cemeteries um, help us cope with the concept of, such as death and bereavement better? I think cemeteries can help because they are, they are very sort of calming landscapes. It, it gives you the time and the headspace to think about what's happened to you. If you've had a recent bereavement, it's a very calm place that, you know, you're not expected to be with lots of other people. And it's a space where it's, it's kind of expected that it's okay to be on your own and nobody's going bo- to bother you and, and, and ask you questions or expect you to be doing anything. So in that regard, actually being by the grave in a cemetery and talking to the person who's died is a really positive thing for a lot of people, and they find it a really good place to sort of help them sort of work through what's happened, what's, what's happened with them in their bereavement. Um, Dr. Rugg, thank you for your time this morning, and I'm sure that um, if when we have another section segment like this one, we'll get you back on the on on the show. But we're short of time today. But thank you for your time, and I wish you all the best and peace and blessing of Allah be upon you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye, dear listeners. As Sharif has already mentioned, we are very short on time. Um, that's why I thought, why not discussing Islamic angle about it? Um, about cemetery, you know, there's one. Um, People often say that women are not allowed to enter cemetery, especially in the religion of Islam. Awesome. Is, it, is it true? No, so basically um, our current caliph explained that uh, from various ahadiths we learned that the Holy Prophet, peace and blessing of Allah be upon him, had generally advised women against visiting graveyards along with funeral processions, you know. But this was not strictly forbidden. If, if for some specific reason a woman was seen at the funeral, the Holy Prophet, peace and, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, would ignore it. In the pre-Islamic era, excessive mourning over the deceased was a common practice and it was mostly done by women. So Islam forbade excessive you know, um, grieving and, and at the same time women are generally uh, forbidden to go to the graveyard when the deceased, uh, with the deceased, so that they may not engage in the excessive uh, lamentation upon being overwhelmed by emotions at the time of burial but uh, during the um, it, it, of course after once the burial has done uh, women can go and pray uh, as normal as men do and about prayer uh, you just mentioned out point out of prayer uh, we, of, of course as a f- houses we, we talked about uh, previous religion mm-hmm. how is the funeral set up in Islam so Islamic funeral prayer or as called janaza prayer uh, consists of an imam standing in front of the body uh, with the congregation behind him lined up in odd numbers of lines so imam says loudly Allah Akbar which means God is the greatest and then the whole congregation stands with their arms folded after a few moments, the Imam repeats Allah Akbar again. Then at third time, he repeats the same word. At the fourth Allah Akbar, he says Aslamu Alaikum Warahmatullah twice, and the prayer is over. And of course, uh, dear listeners, um, before we enter the funeral, where we also say we also say this prayer: Peace be upon you, dwellers of this home, and believers and Muslims, and we, if Allah so will, shall join you. I supplicate for peace for you and for ourselves. 
the listeners will have come to the end of the show are very grateful that you have listened to our show and if you have liked the show you can listen to it again to soundcloud or you can stay with us uh, and you can listen to and can learn more about uh, islam or you can turn on tomorrow at the same time um i'm also very grateful to our producers and to our researchers hania Zoya, Ganta, and Barida, and of course to my de- uh, dear brothers Asim Hashmi and Sharif Bonner. Thank you, brothers. It's always a pleasure. Waalaikum. And uh, dear listeners, as I said, you can listen to our show again, and you can stay tuned with Voice of Islam Radio if you want to learn more about Islam and the beautiful teachings it is giving to us. Uh, it was a pleasure. Until next time, peace and blessings of Allah be with you all. <laughs>